Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, why is much of what many people believe about the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki not true? And how did Hollywood help get various myths started? Our guest is Greg Mitchell, author of numerous books whose latest is called The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Greg Mitchell, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Uh, David, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I loved this book, The Beginning or the End. Uh, the the title and the subtitle actually come from a couple of films, but the, bo- <laughs> the book is about one of them, right? Right, yeah. I'm sort of mashing up uh, the 1947 MGM film and uh, and Dr. Strangelove, which uh, was, uh, was and may still be my favorite movie of all time. I agree with you on that point entirely. Um, I, 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 I'd love to be able to say the beginning or the end is my least favorite movie of all time. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, haven't, I haven't really thought that one through, but it's, not, it's nowhere close to Dr. Strangelove, is it? No, although it's funny, unintentionally funny in spots, and there's some unintentional black humor, I guess you'd say. But this was this was a big MGM film, 1946, just uh, after World War II, about the the nuclear, I, I want to say bombings, but they limit it to the one bombing of Hiroshima, right? Right. Yeah. They uh, among the many very revealing uh, omissions, you might say, and there's plenty of errors of commission, but one of the more revealing uh, errors of omission is uh, I I went through all the scripts, many scripts for the film, and uh, I could see how over time uh, any reference to Nagasaki was removed. And, uh, of course, the reason is that uh, even more than Hiroshima, uh, Nagasaki is morally troubling, and there's a lot of people who uh, still endorse the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, but then we'll say with Nagasaki, it, it might have been a war crime. So uh, you could see why it would have been uh, uh, deleted from from the film. And and this film uh, had a significant impact on what people believe about the bombing or bombings, even though it was was itself a bomb and lost money and was not a big <laughs> right. box office smash, right? Right. Well, you know, it came out, um, and the book traces. You know, the book focuses on this one movie, but it also uh, provides plenty of context for what was going on, really starting with the the day the bomb was dropped, and through that first couple years. And this was a real turning point, you know, because Americans, were, although they uh, overwhelmingly at the time endorsed the, the, the bombing Japan for various reasons. Um, they were incredibly nervous about the future uh, with a, wor- a world with uh, nuclear weapons. You know, you, you have to remember that the bombing of Hiroshima and the announcement that these uh, revolutionary new weapons existed came on the very same day. So people were greeted with two different images in a way, uh, you know, getting back at Japan uh, and then, well, what's going to happen in the future here? This is very scary. So. It was up for grabs that first year or two uh, whether Americans would, you know, embrace or accept uh, a nuclear era, uh, a potential nuclear arms race, uh, bomb tests, um, all kinds of scary things uh, re- related to 
nuclear and radiation, which was, again, something new and scary. Um, so it was up for grabs. And, uh, the, uh, and, you know, there's a good section in the book also on, on John Hersey's New Yorker article, uh, Hiroshima, which came out in August of 1946, a year later. And uh, finally, that penetrated the kind of cover-up of uh, stories about images, real details about what the bomb had really done in Japan. And for a brief period, Americans did begin to turn away. And it was it was very much uh, up for grabs which way uh, things would go. And this was the exact same period that this MGM film was nearing completion. And uh, it helps explain why uh, President Truman himself, um, General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, and others intervened to force dozens of revisions in the movie and, and even in the case of Truman, get an entire crucial scene uh, in a retake, uh, which again is sort of a major, uh, major section in the book. So it, it helps to understand the, that, that context of, of how, uh, when the movie appeared, and what was going on in the uh, the that window after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, that the book is a fascinating uh, saga of how the idea came about, and the movie got made, and other movies almost got made. And and but I, I'm very interested in your your passing reference to to getting back at Japan because the the sort of more more serious, although although ridiculously dishonest claim to justify the bombing at least of Hiroshima is is usually that it was to save lives rather than uh kill lives but what Tru right. what Truman came out with uh in that initial announcement and 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 later uh and shows up in in the film as well is that this was this was revenge right i mean the yeah. the, the scene in the movie where they're they're about to drop the bomb and and they say we dropped pamphlets to warn them of this uh for 10 days, which was 10 more days of warning than they gave us for Pearl Harbor. I mean, it has it has the, the, the utter fabrication since they didn't actually right. drop any pamphlets to warn anybody. Yeah. It would have been ridiculous yeah. anyway. But it also, it, it has that, that element of, of revenge in there, right? Yeah, well, Truman called them, when, you, when you're dealing with a beast, you have to treat him like a beast and uh, things like that. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the movie... Um, I guess, fortunately, for my purposes in in covering this, how the what we call the Hiroshima narrative that was developed by Truman and others, and and actually exists to this day. You know, um, I mean, the reason why any of this is important, I can understand if listeners, you know, sort of saying, "Well, this is interesting and all that," but you know, uh, you can't change history. You can't bring back the you know tens of thousands who were killed, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the arms race happened. You can't undo that. But, you know, the reason it's so important today and why this narrative uh, is so important and what has really driven my writing, you know, for the past 35 years, really, uh, this is my third book. I've written hundreds of articles, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, is how this narrative of, of uh, endorsing the decision in all these ways, you mentioned a couple, and we, we can talk about others at parts of the narrative, but it's so important today because the U.S. still has a first strike or first use policy today. It's, it surprises people that it's official U.S. policy 
to go first with nuclear weapons, not just in retaliation, like in the movies, but uh, you know, as, as a first strike, when we are, are uh, in a conventional war, or even when we feel threatened, we feel feel uh, whether it's North Korea or Iran or whoever it seems to be threatening us. Um, it is official U.S. policy to launch first if the president uh, determines that. And of course, the president today is Mr. Trump, so it's especially dangerous. Uh, but you know, the 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 why this. Uh, film and uh, covering this uh, era is so important is it did kind of set in stone this Hiroshima narrative that you know, today still uh, in the media the vast majority of media reports we've already seen it and we will see it uh, the rest of this month um, you know continue to endorse the use of the bomb sometimes wringing the hands or you know saying saying it's terrible that it happened but you know the bomb had to be used. We see this in, all across the media. Um, and, um, you know, it's so dangerous because it sets the precedent. It accepts the precedent. It's not just that we established a precedent. It continues to endorse, underline that precedent, uh, that you can use these weapons. You know, on the one hand, people say, never again, never again, you know. And then they'll say, well, we did use them twice, and actually it was probably a good thing. And, you know, and the same arguments could be used today, use, use this terrible weapon to, quote, save American lives, unquote, and, you know, quote, end a war, um, and, and, of course, use it on bad people. Um, one can imagine all too easily those arguments being used today, and, of course, people, what will be in people's mind? Well, that's right, we did use them against Japan, they were terrible and ended the war. Right. Um, so that's, again, that's why when people say, well, that interesting historical or interesting film history here, but why does it matter? And I think it matters incredibly. Uh, you know, it won't matter until there's a crisis, and then it, it'll matter more than anything and anything happening in the world in that, during that crisis. No question whatsoever. And, and I do wish the United States would get rid of the policy of first strike, but as a reform, I, I, I lump that sort of parallel with getting police to wear cameras or scaling back climate uh, destruction by 3%. Yeah. I mean, second strike will kill you too, and, and yeah. accidental use will kill you too. And if we don't get rid of the things, we're all going to die. But, 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 but what, are, what are some of the, the key falsehoods that, that people believe, that textbooks still teach, that, that yeah. my, my kids' teachers tell them in school, uh, that, that we're in this this movie and, and and some of the additional falsehoods that were in some of the some of the scripts along the way that didn't didn't right. make it into the final cut. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, like I said, the movie is is a great textbook in a way because they they did squeeze in all of these arguments and and and, and you know again it, the, the movie you you briefly referred to, but it was inspired by the scientists themselves. Um, actually, a Manhattan Project scientist wrote a letter to Donna Reed, the uh, actress. Uh, uh, who was a former uh, chemistry teacher of his in high school, uh, begging her to get the movie studio to make this movie and warn the world about uh, the, the uh, dangers of, of continuing to make these weapons, making bigger weapons. Uh, Albert Einstein was, you know, one of the most prominent leaders of people calling for this. Um, and so the, the movie was basically started out as this warning from the scientists and then when uh, basically Truman and the White House and, and General Groves were given script approval, 
the movie flipped 180 degrees. And so over time, and I, again, I was able to examine all the scripts and memos and so forth, and the White House, uh, you know, letters from the White House, um, you could trace how the script over many months was slowly transformed into this pro-bomb uh, propaganda. And um, and so uh, things were injected, which became and remain, you know, part of the narrative, you know, part of the real Hiroshima narrative. For example, the insistence that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were military ba- bases, and uh, as opposed to mainly just large, you know, metro- metropolitan cities, uh, and the bombs were were not targeted on the any military encampments they had, but they were targeted on the very centers of the city for maximum destruction and civilian carnage. So uh, I'm I'm sure it would shock most people to learn that uh, Nagasaki, which is not even mentioned in the movie, um, that may have been uh, 100,000 people died, of which uh, uh, just a a couple hundred were military. Uh, And Hiroshima was about 85% civilians, mainly women and children. Um, but, you know, uh, and the movie, you know, again, emphasizes the military aspects of these cities. Uh, it also, um, you know, tries to prove or show that, uh, Truman had no other options at the time. Um, it fails to mention again that the Russians were, uh, about to enter the war. Uh, and that Truman, in his diary uh, at Potsdam, wrote "Finny Japs" when that happens, uh, independent of the bomb, completely. So um, there was no question that there was a feeling that the Russian entry into the war alone might produce surrender. Uh, also, there's no mention of uh, letting the emperor remain on the on the throne. There were people like even hawkish people like John J. McCloy who said that we're, we're insane for not telling Japan that they can keep their emperor as, you know, as a figurehead. Um, and so what we did was we dropped the two bombs, and then we allowed them, we told them they could keep their emperor, um, which then helped produce the surrender. Yeah. Um, so there are details like that that, that come, uh, that are the, the bedrock um, of the of this Hiroshima narr- narrative to this day. And, um, you know, it, I suppose if you feel that Truman had zero options, that it was urgent, that it had to be done, and that you were basically killing, you know, soldiers. Uh, the bomb <laughs> makes makes a lot more uh, it's more defensible. But uh, unfa- unfortunately, the truth is much, uh, much, much messier. And 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 some ridiculous uh, additions in the movie, like the the plane being shot at by the Japanese while it's going to drop the bomb, and the yeah, they, they had and- to continually. Uh, continue. I mean, and that's why the movie is really a defense of dropping the bomb, even though it's set out to be that, perhaps. But you know, every action by the Americans has to be uh, shown as courageous and brave. So they can't just have these these bombers heading for Hiroshima and dropping their payload. You know, they have to be hit by anti air, threatened by anti aircraft fire, and yeah. Japanese fighters uh, closing in, and you know, so they're just brave Americans, as opposed to what really happened, which was just, just clear clear flying all the way, uh, no opposition whatsoever. And they, and know, they managed to, to even have the main character, the U.S. Uh, military main character, die uh, as, a, as a 
human sacrifice for the, the you know the real the real victims of of this yeah. the U.S. military. Well, yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, there's an American actually a young scientist who is is sort of the moral voice in the movie, uh, uh, and but again shows how the revisions affected things. All the scripts right up to the shooting of the movie. This one character, you know, uh, off and on expresses moral qualms about working on the bomb and uh, should I really be doing this? Uh, uh, right. But in the revised movie, those, those qualms, some of those qualms remain. But in the end, it, it, the movie ends with again uh, just a almost laugh out loud ending at the Lincoln Memorial, where this this young scientist has died. You know, arming the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, and there's an accident, and he uh, is exposed to radiation, but saves you know 40,000 people on, at the U.S. base. Um, so he's a hero, um, and uh, he then appears as a ghost to his wife uh, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and uh, tells her that uh, actually now he's seen that the bomb can be a great thing, and you know atomic energy is the greatest thing God's ever given us, and so on and so forth. So. Again, that scene alone shows the how the initial uh, hopes for the movie from the scientists were, were. I guess you could use the word perverted uh, yeah. for the ends of the White House and the Pentagon. And and they very much share the blame, not just with God, but with the whole worldwide community of scientists and with the the British and the Canadians. They give them big roles in produce. It's really a an international coalition of of the international community that's that's responsible. I mean, there there seems to be a lot of spreading the blame around uh, to me. Yeah, well, it it shows. Uh... Again, I think the image that we have is that uh, we dropped the bomb, uh, you know, people overwhelmingly uh, endorsed it, and, you know, then we moved on. But, uh, you know, the book shows how there was this period uh, where it was, uh, you know, there was question about this. And the um, actually, the editing shows that uh, the American officials were very... Um, uh, nervous about this and and defensive and uh you know not just letting the facts speak for themselves or you know showing the whole range of things but yeah. they had to uh to push it in a direction that um you know that, that just totally underlined confirmed and uh, actually made up uh, some things about the story so um you know that's revealing itself uh, also I should mention cuz people always find this uh, intriguing is that at the same time um, MGM was in a race to be first with the movie with an atomic bomb movie and um, the famous producer Hal Wallace at Paramount launched his own uh, project uh, and I go into it again quick great great detail in the book but you know the, the sort of the fascinating angle is that he hired Ayn Rand to write the screenplay if you can imagine um, and uh, and she actually had written some previous screenplays. Most people don't know that. Um, but she was hired to write this uh, screenplay for his movie, which was a direct competition, big budget, toe-to-toe with MGM, two giants. Um, and ultimately, her screenplay was so wacky um, and so Randian yeah. <laughs> that uh, Hal Wallace, actually, for, for a while, he hired another writer secretly to start working on an alternative and then finally he threw in the towel so um 
joined in with MGM, and uh, Ayn Rand was very angry, but she then had time to write, start writing uh, Atlas Shrugged, so she uh, did okay with it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if we came out ahead, but yeah. uh, it's very much a very much a things could have been even worse story, and uh, and the book gives some of the outrageous dialogue that uh, that was in Ayn Rand's script. Uh, we're speaking with Greg Mitchell, whose book is the beginning or the end, and it is the story of of the making of the film called the beginning or the end. Uh, Greg, the 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 decision by the filmmakers at MGM to give veto power to the the generals and the White House and to defer to the military on on all things. Uh, you know what 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 drove this uh, sort of voluntary uh, submit, subservience to to government censorship here. Well, you know, uh, even though the film was inspired by the scientists, um, the uh, studios in Hollywood. I mean, most people were surprised to learn were. Uh, almost all very conservative, uh, MGM particularly. Uh, the studio chief, Louis B. Mayer, was a right-wing Republican. Uh, and even though he signed off on the movie and, in fact, said he wanted to make it the most important movie he'd ever make, um, you know, he was certainly inclined to go along with, uh, you know, with the government and the military, very patriotic individual. Um, and so... Uh, um, and, you know, and they, it was tough in this post-war period to to have anything critical of, uh, you know, of the government, of the war, uh, and so they were they were susceptible to um, to this influence. And you know, they they actually the producer sat down with Truman in the White House. He actually named gave the movie its name, um, and uh, so they were very wow. We're here. We're sitting in the Oval Office with the president. Geez. We've got to give give him anything he wants, and General Groves, of course, was head of the Manhattan Project, and he uh, they also, of course, wanted his cooperation, and he signed on as chief advisor for a, what was then an incredible fee of ten thousand dollars, which was the equivalent of one hundred and thirty thousand today, uh, to be chief advisor, and you know he was given script approval, and so the die was cast right there. Uh, none of the scientists. I mean, the book you know shows how MGM had to chase Einstein and chase uh, Robert Oppenheimer and chase Leo Szilard to get their uh, signature on contracts allowing them to be portrayed in the movie, um, and you know eventually they succeeded with all three of them, um, but did not give them any you know authority. They they saw parts of the script and you know had some complaints and things like that. Um, but they weren't given any authority to make changes. And uh, and so you had this incredible imbalance, if you can imagine President Truman and the Pentagon and Leslie Groves on one side, and these, you know, <laughs> scientists spread out around the country who have no such power, um, who are raising concerns about the movie, um, but, you know, can't really force any changes. So, uh, you know, Zillard, I have a quote by him in the book where, after seeing a screening, he said, uh, if our sin as scientists was to help create the bomb, uh, our punishment was having to watch the beginning or the end. So it kind of encapsulates the scientists kind of throwing in the towel at the end. 
washing their hands of the whole thing. Though, though pretty weak resistance from some of the scientists. They didn't refuse to give their signatures. They didn't protest. They didn't <clears throat> denounce. They didn't try to stop the production of, uh, of the movie, which admittedly they had, as you say, initiated the creation of it. But yeah. once they saw what it was going to be, uh, not, not, not a real uh, organized political uh, resistance yeah. effort from them. Well, you can imagine, even though scientists had their own associations, that they're sort of uh, uh, arms control associations that they formed. They were, you know, they're scientists. They're not very, especially well organized. And um, you know, and I focus a lot on um, on Oppenheimer, who's always always a fascinating character. You know, no matter what you think of him, people uh, he's generated dozens of books and uh, documentaries and. Uh, TV movies and everything else. He's, you know, he's a fascinating figure, and the book captures him just classic Oppenheimer. You know, he dithers. You know, he thinks he he thinks the movie's a terrible idea and refuses to meet with anyone. Then, out of the blue, he sits down for two interviews with Ayn Rand, um, who then bases a character in Atlas Shrugged on him. Uh, then he, you know, he, he doesn't want to do anything, and then then he has dinner with the MGM producer. And you know, reads the script and, and basically says, if you make a few changes, um, I'm fine. And then he privately tells his friends the movie's awful, it's laughable, idiotic. Uh, I even even have found an FBI a transcript of the FBI was tapping his phone um, for his anti alleged anti-American and uh, pro-communist sympathies, uh, which would lead to his downfall a few years later. Um, you know, I actually have an, found an FBI transcript where he's, after signing this contract, he's, you know, talking to his wife and just, you know, mocking it and uh, trying, to de- trying to defend doing it. And, um, so, you know, again, in the character of Oppenheimer, you have, uh, you ha- you have everything. You have a, someone enthusiastically helping make the bomb, then expressing uh, some moral qualms afterwards, wringing his hands. Then joining in, continuing to advise on the bomb, and the same thing with the movie, you know, mocking it, uh, and then essentially joining in, and uh, you know, letting himself be portrayed. Uh, so it's, um, uh, I mean, I'd like to think the, you know, the book uh, contains multitudes, as, as I guess Bob Dylan says in his new song. Um, there's so many characters and so many incidents that perfectly reflect what America was going through at that period. So it's kind of, uh, even though it mainly focuses on this this bad movie, um, you know, you could read the book and say, yeah, okay, I, this, is, this is one of the better understandings I, I've ever, ever seen of how we got to where we were for, you know, 50 years of an arms race. Greg Mitchell, we have 60 seconds left. Do you think people will ever get over the idea that there could be a justifiable war or a justifiable use of nuclear weapons in the future uh, until they get over misunderstandings and myths about World War II and about yeah. Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, again, very briefly, you always hope, you always hope in the younger generation, uh, the staunchest defenders have been the veterans of World War II and their, their uh, families. Uh, who, you know, understandably think, not really knowing that much of the history, that, uh, you know, that the bomb saved the lives of all these soldiers. So that is fading. The polls are not changing all that much yet, and there's so many other concerns today, you know, from climate disasters to uh, Black Lives Matter and so forth. But this 
becomes nuclear becomes the number one issue in a flash, uh, and so I, I just try to keep alive the this threat and uh, and how the, how Hiroshima has has such a big effect on how we view nuclear weapons uh, and their possible use today. Well, this is a great contribution, uh, Greg Mitchell. Uh, his new book is The Beginning or the End, How Hollywood and America Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Highly recommend you get a copy right now. Greg, thank you very, very much for coming David, on. David, thanks. Always, always a pleasure talking to you. Okay, thanks. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a non-profit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.